and to all the women, and especially the young women, who put their faith in this campaign and in me, I want you to know that nothing has made me prouder than to be your champion. Hey everyone, this is episode three of Achieve Great Things. This is RJB of Hadaway Communications. Uh, in this episode, we're going to talk to Patrick Hickey, who's a professor of political science at West Virginia University. Hope you all enjoy. Um, and keep sending us uh, thoughts, feedback, comments to podcast at hadaway.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at hadaway.com, C-O-M-M. Thanks for listening. So I'm here with uh, Patrick Hickey, uh, Dr. Patrick Hickey, who is a, um, a good friend of mine and a, a professor of political science at West Virginia University. Uh, Patrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks, RJ. Glad to be here. And you and I have talked so much about the election and politics, and you study the presidency and you live in West Virginia, which gives you a pretty unique perspective um, on this past election as, the, as someone who studies it and then kind of lived through um, that experience in a place that the the support for trump was probably greater than in a lot of places yeah no it's um you know the trump phenomenon i think we were second or third um highest in terms of trump's share of the vote and you know even um at the university right which universities tend to be liberal i would say my classes were kind of 50 50 um trump clinton and you know talking to them after the fact in my presidency class this semester um one young woman said you know uh, I kind of just think it became the cool thing to do for like fraternities and sororities to start like, you know, jump on the Trump train, so to speak. What did you learn as a as an academic and as a scholar and as a sort of uh, analyst of the presidency? Um, it's probably too early to tell what we know about this presidency. But what, what did you learn about what, what did you learn about from the election that that maybe you didn't know before? Oh, goodness, that I didn't know before. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with what I knew before, right? And that's that we, um, we tend to pick presidents who are opposite of the previous president, mm-hmm. right? And, and that breaks down, um, you know, if like the vice president becomes a president like Reagan, H.W. Bush, but then Bill Clinton is very different than H.W. Bush. George W. Bush is very different than Bill Clinton. Barack Obama is very different than George W. Bush. And Donald Trump is very different than Barack Obama, right? So I think we're going to have like a soft-spoken, thoughtful, black female president next, maybe. Um, and <laughs> right. so that that's kind of, you know, um, I was, you know, like many people, I thought it was almost a certainty that um, we'd be talking about President Clinton right now and not President Trump. But the one thing I was correct about is, you know, his shot or the thing that kind of suggested he had a shot was that he was very different. From, from the previous president. Um, in terms of what I didn't know, and I think um, you know, lots of um, folks are realizing this now, um, I think that Democrats kind of took this demographic advantage that they had in certain places for granted. Um, and I think the biggest thing that kind of Democrats could do moving forward is, um, is kind of uh, pay attention to disadvantaged communities. Um, I guess another thing I'll mention that I didn't know, and I'd love to expand on that thought um, later if you like, Um, but that uh, there's more dissatisfaction with the status quo than I realized, right? I I would Mm -hmm. talk to people in West Virginia, and it makes sense because it's West Virginia, um, but people would say, look, 
if Clinton gets elected, it's just going to be the same as it is now. Um, and I'm dissatisfied with the way things are now. And Trump is just rolling the dice. It could be really good. It could be really bad. But I kind of don't really see how things could be worse. And, you know, I would have these conversations in bars here in West Virginia and kind of push back and say, like, you have like a supercomputer in your pocket that has access to all of the world's information. You know, you can like get on an airplane and go wherever you want. Um, you can, you know, here in Morgantown, West Virginia, you can eat cuisines from all over the world, prepared by people who have immigrated from all over the world, right? Um, so that part didn't make much sense to me, but it was definitely something I kind of um, felt in the environment when I, t when I talked to folks. Um, yeah, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of, what I think Democrats should take from this is, uh, or a big kind of shocker from the election, right, is the both decrease in turnout of the mm -hmm. non-white vote and then decrease in margins. Um, you know, the non-white vote went to Clinton, right, but it, it margins lower than it went to Obama. Um, yeah. And um, turnout, right, if you look like Pennsylvania, I think the African-American vote went from 13% to 10%. Um, and if it had been 13% of the electorate, Clinton wins that state. Um, and so when I say that, right, lots of people get upset and say, you're blaming non-white people for electing President Trump. And I'm not doing that at all. I'm mm -hmm. blaming Democrats for not paying enough attention to the concerns and needs of non-white communities. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, there was a lot of good reason for folks um, not to turn out, right? Like, we had our first black president for eight years. And still, Tamir Rice is getting killed. You know, a, a young African-American kid is getting killed by police with no repercussions. Um, not, you know, African-American in, in the inner city communities, um, unlike the, our current president, I realize that not all black people live in inner cities. Um, but those that do, <laughs> right, I think had said, well, we had a first black president. I was excited, like something about my community might change. And nothing did for eight years. Um, really took that um, those communities for granted um, and kind of also assumed, I mean, Trump did better with Hispanic voters than uh, Mitt Romney did. And so I think that Democrats kind of assumed that um, given Trump's rhetoric about immigration, about the Mexican community, that he would do worse with the Hispanic community, but he did better. Um, and again, I think that that's because Democrats aren't really making arguments to those communities. They're just kind of taking them for granted. Uh, Killer Mike um, uh, the rapper was on, I think TMZ cornered him and said, you know, mm -hmm. how could, how could you vote for Jill Stein? How could you tell people that like, there's no difference in Clinton and Trump, like, you know, kind of this, um, typical liberal white outrage or whatever. And he said, look, the community I come from sucks. And it sucked for the past 30 years and, mm -hmm. and Clinton had a shot and Obama had a shot. And, um, if Democrats, if, if African-Americans are going to vote 95-5 for Democrats, they should get something from Democrats. And I don't see what we're getting, right? Like, they're getting this, like, strong block of political support from us, and we're not getting anything in return. And so I think the Democrats have really, you know, just taken it for granted. And that's something that I was surprised about, but in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised about. Um, and mm -hmm. I do really think... You know, we talk a lot, or the media talks a lot about the white working class and how they were the key to the election. I think that's a quarter of the story, maybe half of the story, if I'm trying to be generous. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like 95% of the story that you get from the media. And I think as bigger, bigger part of the story 
is that non-white communities did not turn out for Democrats and were not as excited about Clinton's candidacy as they were about previous Democratic candidates. Yeah, well, that's, um, yeah, that's, I mean, there's, as you and I have discussed, it's so complex. There's so many different um, dynamics to the, the, to elections in general, which you know better than, better than most people. Um, and that, that's an interesting one to, to highlight. So thinking about sort of pivoting to communications, as you know, we're, you know, the, our audience here is people who want to create impact through communications. What what kind of um, challenges or opportunities do you see for communicators in, in this current environment, um, whether that's political or media or a combination of both from your perspective? I mean, I'll go with the biggest opportunity I see, which is, which is again, reaching out to people who are not engaged in the political process, right? Half of Americans didn't vote. Who could have? Yeah. Um, and if you look at, you know, if you go from, if you look at polls, right, and you go from everyone contacted to registered voters to likely voters, the Democratic um, support goes down. You know, as you go from every American to those Americans who are likely to vote, Democrats get worse and worse. Um, and so I think that that's a huge, um, a huge opportunity, right? If Democrats, I mean, that's what Obama did, right? Obama registered and mobilized and engaged communities that were previously, you know, had low levels of registration and mobilization and engagement. Um, so I think that that's the biggest opportunity. And I think, you know, again, with the supercomputers in our pockets, there's lots of ways to reach out um, to folks, right? Folks yeah. don't vote, but, you know, lots of, most people have smartphones. Um, lots of people use Twitter. Um, there's different ways to, to reach out to those communities, um, through communications, I think. The biggest challenge, um, if you look at, you know, those communities that are already engaged, is we've just, um, you know, you hear this echo chamber or silo idea. Um, you know, every now we can choose our news, we can choose our sources of information, um, and people go and choose the news and information that fits with their preconceived uh, worldview, their preconceived notion of politics. And political science research shows that that is because it, it literally hurts our brains when we see information that is um, that is contrary to our previous worldview, right? There's that cognitive dissonance there. They've, they've done studies. And yeah, yeah. It, it's psychologically difficult um, for people to see information that, that um, conflicts with their preconceived notions. Um, so I think that's the biggest challenge, right? And so I always go back to this um, real news versus tabloid news idea. Mm -hmm. um, we've lost that distinction, um, in, in the United States, I think, right? Like when I was a kid and went to the grocery store with my mom, there was a stack of papers that was, you know, the failing New York times, the wall street journal, the Washington post, the local paper. And you knew that that was real factual news that you could trust. Um, and then you went to check out and you saw these things like, you know, Hillary Clinton is mothering an alien baby in the white house. El Elvis was spotted in Canada. Um, you know, George W. Bush has a secret gay lover. And you knew that that was tabloid news that was fake. Um, and you knew that was just kind of like for a laugh. Although right? Elvis, Elvis may have moved to Canada now because of well, the situation. <laughs> yeah, he's seeking asylum in Canada. Exactly. Um, but I think that, you know, pe people have lost that distinction. You know, even smart people. I mean, I know people, I won't call them out by, by name or or relation or anything like that, but people are posting articles before the election about Hillary Clinton killed four people in August. And mm -hmm. like, you can't like convince people who want to believe that, that Hillary Clinton did not in fact kill four people in August. Right. Like, and I think that that's, a, that's a big challenge, right? Cause if, if 20% of the country 
on the conservative side wants to believe that nonsense about you know democratic figures and 20% of the country on the liberal side wants to believe that nonsense about conservative figures well there's 40% of the country that has just become so calcified um, and you know kind of in their own um, the bubbles right we'll say that um, facts can't get through anymore and so I think that's the biggest challenge both in communications um, and to the country we've lost a set of shared facts and we've lost a set of shared values, right? So look at Putin's yeah. popularity amongst Republicans, um, right? Like all of a sudden Putin, Republicans love Putin um, because they think that, you know, because he may have helped Trump or he at least like, you know, put a stick in the eye of the Clinton campaign. It's really and remarkable. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's insane, right? Like, but if, I mean, I think a good counterfactual is what if that happened opposite, right? What if Putin had screwed with with Trump and helped Clinton? Would Democrats respond the same way? I mean, I kind of think that they would. Like, maybe not, maybe not quite as much, but, you know, so we've kind of um, separated into these two camps. And so, again, you know, I'm saying 20% on each side because that's what super partisan people do, and super partisan people are the ones who tend to vote. Um, yeah. Right. And so, again, that's why I think that the communities who are not currently engaged and mobilized is really um, the the opportunity for the communications field to to try to um, engage and mobilize those communities. And I think there's you know certainly very good arguments you can make right now. I think the thing is you have to come up with a solution to people's problems. And that is what Donald Trump at least represented to a lot of people. Right. And, and many of us could say. You know, okay, you came to West Virginia, you put on a hard hat, and you pantomimed digging coal. If you knew anything about coal, you know that we don't dig coal anymore, right? <laughs> like, um, but, and you don't, right? And so for us, it may seem like this guy's just like a joker who did like a little 30 second pantomime and said, I'll get your jobs back. But to people who are hurting, they hear, oh, someone recognizes my pain and wants to get my job back. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is the opportunity for the communications field is um, there are more ways than ever to reach out to people. And um, I think that that's the opportunity. And I think the challenge is uh, people aren't just going to sign on with your cause because Donald Trump's bad. Right. And I think that that was a, um, a mistake of the Clinton campaign. That was a that most of their communications were about how bad Donald Trump was, and people knew in May that Donald Trump was bad. Um, I think what the Clinton campaign did not do, and what the challenge for folks in the communications field now is to do, is say, um, "Here's how we're going to help you. Yeah. Um, here's some here's some deliverables. Here's some measurables. Here's some some things that if you engage with us, your life will benefit in these ways." Yeah, absolutely. Well, and just to I like the the way you're describing this because I think it goes beyond the what we've seen as a I think um division between do we reach out to rural white people or do we focus on the base and you know, I think what you're saying is, you know, we can do both and and the power power of communication and technology like it allows us to do both, right? We don't have to choose and we don't have to overreact and say, okay, now everything's all about you know, people from where I'm from in Ohio, it, this, it, it can be, we can, we can, we can fight on multiple fronts. Exactly. I would say it can be, you know, rural white folks, it can be the base and it can be more, 
right? So, um, and again, as you say, the power of technology and communications is um, that uh, that you can reach all those people pretty, I mean, you might have to create different strategies um, for those different communities, but the technology to, to reach them is pretty similar, right? And um, that's what the president did, right? And is still doing through Twitter. You know, every morning, um, he's trying to engage with those folks, and, and there's lots of folks who are paying attention. Um, and I think, you know, again, um, many people may find it um, kind of uh, shallow and misleading what he is doing on Twitter, um, but he is at least, he's spinning it, right? He's spinning it in a way of like, um, I think just this morning he tweeted that he's going to Boeing, going to Indiana to talk to Boeing mm-hmm. to fight for jobs, right? And that, again, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm doing this thing that's going to benefit you. Um, and I think, you know, again, I, I think there's a good argument to be made that he's doing it in a pretty shallow, superficial way, but it's effective, right? And so I think that suggests to folks in the communication field that you, if you do that um, in a meaningful way, it could probably be even more effective. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's really helpful guidance, I think. And I, hopefully people have already been thinking about this, but if not, they should start now. I, th- I just want to end with a, a question for you as this is, you know, in your profession and in your field. Um, it's a little too early to tell how this um, administration will change the, the presidency, but as someone who studies the presidency broadly and, and over time, what are you, I mean, is this just is this completely uncharted, you know, territory that we have to just deal with day to day? Or is this something that you think is, is kind of part of that, that cycle? Um, so I think it's part of the cycle in terms of, you know, kind of, um, the pendulum swinging back and forth, you know, we tend to go liberal, uh, you know, liberal, conservative, liberal, conservative. Um, so I think it's part of that cycle. I think the difference is that, you know, Donald Trump's not really a Republican, um, and so I think that that, um, presents, um, problems for him with Congress, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I think the only bill they've passed is the bill to repeal the Obama administration's, uh, stream rule that was trying to make it so that coal runoff, um, would not, um, go into streams. <laughs> yeah, seems, seems totally outrageous to, to, to not allow coal companies to put you know, run off into streams. Like, why, why wouldn't they be able to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's insane, right? And every member of West Virginia's congressional delegation was there watching him sign it. Um, and, you know, people think it's going to bring coal jobs back. And I guess forget that just two years ago, we had a water crisis in the southern part of the state where, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of people couldn't drink the water or even bathe in the water for months. Um, but that's all they've done. And yeah, I think it's a, it's a, you know, my personal opinions, it's a pretty terrible thing to do. Um, but that's all they've done. And so I think that, um, you know, the thing that makes it uncharted territory is he's kind of such a loose cannon. Um, that's kind of what appeals to his base. You know, he tells it like it is, he doesn't follow party orthodoxy. I think that's going to make it difficult for him to work with the Republican Congress. You know, like the vice president Pence, if Pence was the president, um, the Republican Congress has probably done more, you know, a month in. Um, but, you know, Trump kind of has his own style. Um, and so I think that that, um, you know, what's appealing to him may make it more difficult for him to work with the Congress. Um, what concerns me the most and what I think is unprecedented is foreign policy. Foreign policy is where the president has the most power as the commander in chief. Um, and, 
again, we had a set of shared values and shared consensus in what was appropriate for the United States military to do and how to respond to kind of international events, um, basically trying to avoid World War III. Um, and I'm not sure that this president buys that consensus. You know, his, um, I'm, I don't know when this will air, but his uh, press conference on Thursday, February 16th, mm-hmm. which yesterday as we're talking, he said the easiest thing in the world for me to do would be to shoot the Russian ship that's off the East Coast out of the water. Mm-hmm. That's nuts, mm-hmm. right? That's like no president would have said that before him. Like that's just, that, and, and that's what's deeply concerning. Um, I think about this presidency, um, his power over foreign policy and the fact that we don't really know what he's going to do with foreign policy. Um, I mean, I could go on and on about this as someone who studies the presidency. Uh, I think there's two things to keep in mind with this particular president. One is that presidential character really matters who the president is, as a person really matters. Mm -hmm. There's a great book called the presidential difference that basically argues that emotional intelligence is the key to a successful or failed presidency, right? Nixon um, was an incredibly talented person who did not have emotional intelligence and screws up his own presidency and the country and the institution of the presidency because um, he didn't have emotional intelligence. So that's concerning about the current president. Um, Another thing is um, there's a book called The Presidential Experience that was written decades ago, but it basically suggests that the presidency is dangerous to presidents um, the psychological and physical stresses of the office um, are kind of too much for any to expect any one human being um, to deal with. And I think both from the president's um, behavior at the news conference yesterday and the fact that he seems to want to go to Florida every weekend, um, I think we're already seeing four weeks into the presidency um, the weight of the office weighing on the man. Right. And that that is concerning, given how important emotional intelligence is and given his apparently low levels of emotional intelligence, given how stressful the office is and given the president's power over foreign policy. um, I think those are real concerns in terms of communications to bring it back. um, I think the really interesting question for this presidency is um, President Trump has used Twitter as a highly effective weapon so far. Um, does that continue or does it bite him in the butt at some point? Um, you know, in terms of the Russia thing with Flynn, um, you know, Flynn made these phone calls, I think five to the Russian ambassador. Um, he talked sanctions, which he wasn't supposed to talk to, lied to the vice president about it. Um, you know, reports are one entire phone call was dedicated to sanctions. Um, and then the president tweeted out an hour later, you know, Putin decided not to expel American diplomats. Great move. I always knew he was very smart. Well, that suggests that the president may have had some knowledge there, right? And so, and and we know um, that oftentimes the president will see a report on television and then tweet out something about it right afterwards. Um, And so I think, you know, it's been effective so far, but will there be one of these things like there may have been with Flynn in Russia or something in the future where the president's fondness for social media and communicating directly to the American people through Twitter um, comes back to really haunt him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll hope for the best, and um, maybe we can check in with you again in a few months, um, assuming the administration still exists, um, and <laughs> get your take on where things are. But um, we really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and, and chat with us and help us sort of kick off this podcast. So thanks a lot, Patrick. 
Yeah, thank you, RJ. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks for tuning in to episode three of Achieve Great Things. Hopefully you enjoyed these first three episodes. We will be back in about a week with a new episode. We're going to aim to put one out every week. We'd love to hear what you think. Thoughts, comments, wishes. Um, Also, if you have people you think we should be interviewing, um, or if you want to come on as a guest, let us know. Hit us up at podcast at hideaway.com or or through um, Twitter or Facebook. Appreciate you listening and see you next time. And to all the women, and especially the young women, who put their faith in this campaign and in me. I want you to know that nothing has made me prouder than to be your champion.